0: Health 101 is brought to you by the physicians of the Metro Omaha Medical Society, and we are so grateful to Children's Hospital and Medical Center, as well as Nebraska Cancer Specialists for their support of this podcast. Welcome to Health 101. I'm Carol Wang, and today's topic is, I think, a topic that everyone is affected by by someone in their lives, by themselves, their loved ones, and it is breast cancer. It is not a happy topic, but it is an important topic. I mean, I think the numbers now say one in eight women will have a likelihood of developing breast cancer at some point in their lives. So this is affecting half of the population. And Kirsten Liu is here. She's an oncologist, and she is talking to us about what we need to know about breast cancer because... In some ways, when you look at the statistic, it is one of the most survivable cancers. And yet then, on the other hand, I still hear about women dying from it.
1: Absolutely. Well, good morning, Carol. Thank you for having me. Um, you are absolutely right that even in 2019, about one in eight women will receive a breast cancer diagnosis in their lifetime. It's estimated that this year in the U.S., about 270,000 women will receive a diagnosis of invasive breast cancer, and about 60,000 women will receive a diagnosis of non-invasive breast cancer. It's um, in the in Nebraska, there'll be about 15, 1,500 new cases and about 230 deaths during this year. And so it's important that we talk about screening and we talk about how we can access resources for women to deal with that diagnosis. Uh, the good news is that over the past 30 years, the death rate has decreased by about 40%, and that's due to better screening modalities and improved treatments. And so there's a lot to be hopeful for when we talk about this diagnosis diagnosis.
0: I think a lot of women automatically are terrified when the C word breast cancer comes into their lives. And I feel like um, there's so much more information about breast cancer, both good and bad out there in the wonderful wide world web (laughs) that we live all in. Mm -hmm. Do you find that when your patients come in, they have a good understanding of cancer, or do you feel like you still have to explain what's going on in their bodies?
1: There is a tremendous range of the knowledge that patients have when they come in. Some patients come in very well-informed, some people come in extremely misinformed, and some people come in as primarily a blank slate. And so uh, we just need to kind of assess where a woman is. A lot of times I start that conversation with, what is your understanding of what we know so far about your cancer? Because by the time they come to the oncologist, someone has told them that either they have cancer or they have an increased risk of cancer. So you always start with what is your understanding of what's going on? And even when patients do have quite a bit of knowledge, I always review the basics and kind of get them at least the basics of what they need to know to make an informed decision going forward with however they're going to approach either their cancer or their risk of cancer.
0: So do you see some women preemptively then who don't have any signs of cancer at this point? Some women who have, for example,
1: a BRCA gene, they will come in to discuss their risk uh, with an oncologist even before they have a diagnosis of cancer, and they may never receive a diagnosis of cancer, but they do come in to discuss their familial risk and what
0: they can do to modify that risk. So what do we know about breast cancer today in the sense of we know that there are genes, BRCA1, BRCA2, BRCA1 and 2, that mm-hmm. are factors or are they actually the genes that turn on breast cancer?
1: So BRCA, the BRCA gene mutation and it, the most common breast cancer-associated genes are BRCA1 and 2, and both of those genes cause your body to create a protein that it malfunctions and does not allow proper DNA repair. And so as our bod as our cells are growing and dividing, which happens all of the time we, normally, we, we have mistakes in that DNA replication all of the time. And so generally, our bodies will take those um, mis, uh, misformed cells out of circulation or repair that DNA. And that BRCA gene makes it so that we cannot repair that misformed DNA. And it allows those cells with those mutations to grow and divide. And it's that DNA repair defect that then allows other mutations to occur to allow those breast cancers or ovarian cancers to
0: form uh, more commonly in families and certainly at an earlier age. So we have a whole subset of, of women who get breast cancer because there's genetic factors. Correct. We've got a whole set of women who, if I understand, if you get breast cancer early, it's usually more aggressive. So there's more aggressive types of cancer that hit younger women. Correct. And then there's, I don't want to call it standard everyday breast cancer lump mm-hmm. type of thing. Mm-hmm. All of them, I, as I, as I, can gather are estrogen-fed, correct, which is a hormone that is largely female? That's not correct. Actually, that last point is not correct. So
1: um, backing up a little bit to what you said earlier, about 5 to 10% of breast cancers that are diagnosed can be associated with an identifiable gene mutation. And we certainly check gene for gene mutations in a lot more women than that but it's really only 5 to 10% that have an identifiable gene mutation and the rest we consider to be sporadic breast cancers now, we certainly can test for more genes now than we used to test for. So, for example, if I have a woman who had genetic testing for breast cancer and that was maybe 7 to 10 years ago, I will often send them back for additional genetic testing. And I have several patients that have now come back with a positive gene, not in a BRCA gene, but maybe in one of the other 30 to 40 genes that we can check that can tell us more about their risk for breast cancer and then their risk for for other cancers as well. Um, In terms of the risk across the age spectrum, so uh, we know that about one in 50 women who are under the age of 50 will develop breast cancer, and that that risk continues to rise until it's about 1 in 15 for women over 70. Um, And so certainly we, we tend to hear a little more, I think, about the younger patients that are diagnosed, but it's still not the most common scenario. We do tend to treat breast cancers in younger women more aggressively because Breast cancer is one of those cancers that we really can't look at a woman and honestly tell her that she's cured until she's been through her entire life and that cancer hasn't returned. Now, once we get past 10 to 15 years, um, she has a higher chance of developing a second cancer rather than a recurrence of the first. But, um, But we do have situations where people can have a recurrence 10 to 20 years later, and it's not the norm, and we don't quite understand how that happens, but um, we can tell women that they're in remission, um, but it's difficult to say, yes, you are definitively cured until really the end of her life. Now, um, so when we're treating younger women, we have a longer time period over which we're trying to protect them. Getting back to your point about are all breast cancers estrogen fed? uh, The answer to that, unfortunately, is no. And I say unfortunately because tumors that are not. Positive for estrogen and progesterone receptors can be more difficult to treat. Um, For women who have hormone receptor positive breast cancers, we can use an anti hormone therapy uh, to decrease that risk. And in some situations, that can decrease the risk of recurrence by up to 50%, which is pretty significant for a non chemotherapy type of treatment. Uh, That being said, those anti hormone therapies still have their side effects, but at least it's not chemotherapy. Um, So, not all breast cancers are estrogen fed.
0: Chemotherapy and radiation still remain the standards for treatment, are they not for cancer? So um, every woman with breast
1: cancer will have a surgeon because that really is the mainstay of what starts the starts the road to cure. Um, and every woman will have a medical oncologist, and, and that's what I do. And so we use medicines to try to decrease the chance of that cancer coming back. Or in the case of metastatic disease, we use those medicines to hopefully improve quality of life, prolong survival, those types of goals. Um, Not every woman with breast cancer will need a radiation oncologist. That depends on the type of surgery that she chooses and also what the result is from that surgery.
0: And also, thank you so much to Children's Hospital and Medical Center for supporting this podcast.
2: This podcast is generously supported by Children's Hospital and Medical Center. Children's is the only full-service pediatric health center in Nebraska, providing expertise in more than 50 pediatric specialty services to children across the region and beyond. It is home to Nebraska's only Level 4 newborn intensive care unit and the only Level 2 pediatric trauma center. Nationally, Children's is recognized as a best children's hospital by U.S. News & World Report. To meet the growing demand for high-quality pediatric services, Children's is growing to better serve more children and families. Its new clinical facility, the Hubbard Center for Children, opens in 2021. Learn more at childrensomaha.org.
0: I feel like there are a lot of women who are, you know, faced with all the choices, and, and let's Let's back up even a little bit. When they come to meet with you, they've heard somehow that they have cancer. Correct. But I also think that when I've spoken to people, they say th- they can't hear you. You may mm-hmm. be speaking to them, mm-hmm. but they don't hear you because their main brain cannot go past the C word, that they are thinking about what this is going to mean for their families, what this is going to mean for themselves, that they their brain has gone away mm-hmm. and you're sitting there trying to talk to them about what they should be thinking about next, what, you know, what they should right. be considering in a treatment plan. And so what would you tell patients if you are coming in to see and you think this news is going to be of this nature, what should you do because... I feel like you get the blank look of "Do you understand?" or "What did your doctor tell you?" And you right. know, so many of these patients give you the blank look. I don't actually know.
1: Right. So I really encourage patients when they come in to meet both with the surgeon and the medical oncologist and the radiation oncologist, mm-hmm. if they do see them, that they bring in one, two, or three family members. More than that, it gets to be a little bit, um, a little bit chaotic. But um, I always tell folks that that four, six, eight years are better than two because what you're saying is absolutely right. So when patients come in, they've already heard that they have cancer, um, but there's so many different things going through their head that I know that at times I can say one thing and then they're off thinking about mm-hmm. that and they're not, you're right, not hearing another word that I'm saying. And that's where those family members can certainly be helpful. Um, we talked a little bit earlier that that some people will record what we say, different Physician offices have different policies on that, um, so they should ask their physician, but certainly some of us allow that. Um, and then they can go back and kind of rehash what we've said before. Um, it's helpful. So when I start talking to a patient about their breast cancer, I really walk them through the surgery, the, the what their systemic therapy options are, whether or not radiation would be involved. It's a very long office visit. Um, and they should bring questions. And quite often, once I've gone through the basics of what I think they need to know, we've answered 90% of their questions. It's really important that before they get to that discussion that their doctor understands what else is going on in their life, what are they trying to work, do they have kids they're managing at home, are they managing their adult parent, um, you know, what else is happening so that we can also talk about how they're going to work that treatment into their life. So I think certainly bringing additional friends and family members is helpful. Having a list of questions that you definitely want answered is helpful. Um, I think knowing that you can reach out to your doctor and their team at a later date as you do kind of process that information. Because often we'll have a discussion over 30 to 40 minutes, and at the end of that discussion, I feel silly asking, do you have any questions? Because it's so much information to absorb. And and we know that, and that's why the oncology team is there. You know, So as you are thinking about things, three days later, you think, I really want to know the answer to this question. You can
0: just call and ask. What should they be thinking about when they're thinking about their treatment plan? Because I feel like there's such a variety of options now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that women, as patients, and women, you just, just the patients, are that aware and understand what should you be factoring in. Sure.
1: Well, really, the the basis of our recommendations and what their options are depends on their pathology report, and we really need that full data from their biopsy or their surgery in order to make really solid recommendations. And so, it really comes down to what is the size of the tumor, um, are any lymph nodes involved. Do we think that it has spread anyplace else? There are certain women that are at high enough risk of that, that we just, we do CT scans, bone scan, or a PET scan to look other places. Um, And then we really pay attention to the biology of the tumor now. That's one thing that's really different now than when I started 15 years ago, is that Um, We pay a lot of attention to the estrogen receptors, the progesterone receptors. Not just are they positive or negative, but how positive or negative. We look for another type of receptor called HER2. That's overexpressed in about 20% of breast cancers, and we have a different treatment for that. Um, We want to know how how proliferative is their cancer, and we have two ways of looking at that. We look at the grade of the tumor. We look at something called a KI-67, which is a different marker of proliferation, kind of how quickly is that cancer are growing and dividing. And so it's really the basis of that pathology report that will then determine what their options are going forward. One thing that's different now, I'd say, than it was about 10 years ago, is that we are more commonly using what we call neoadjuvant systemic therapy, and that is chemotherapy or maybe an antibody therapy combined with chemotherapy before a woman has surgery. And that's based on the size and the grade of the tumor as well as that receptor profile. Um, So that's one thing that we want to look at. Is there a role for systemic therapy before you have surgery? And then, of course, there are lots
0: of different surgery options that we can talk about as well. Well, and there's the whole discussion that has been going on for probably about a decade now about elective cancer preemptive surgery so mm-hmm. if you have it in one breast choosing to take both breasts if sure. you are also a BRCA gene person choosing to have a you know to have a hysterectomy mm-hmm. and choosing those options as well which i think are somewhat controversial to a lot of people and i guess the question is do you choose less invasive do you choose most invasive sure Well, so let's talk first about the patients who have a
1: diagnosis of breast cancer because that's really a separate issue Mm -hmm. compared to women who are just at increased risk because of their genes. So for women who have a breast cancer diagnosis, um, it's a conversation really with their surgeon about what... The first question is, can we remove that breast cancer with a reasonable cosmetic outcome? And what's reasonable is a very personal choice to that woman. Um, But most cancers can be removed safely with a lumpectomy. And for any woman under 70, we always follow that with radiation to decrease the chance of the breast cancer recurring in that breast. Uh, There are some studies for women over 70 with smaller tumors that they may do nearly as well with not having radiation. Um, so for women who are candidates for that lumpectomy, another way of saying that is partial mastectomy, um, there often is a consideration, well, should I have a mastectomy? Should I have a bilateral mastectomy? Even if it's not necessarily medically needed, um, and some things that, f- some issues that factor into that decision for those women can be whether or not they will be comfortable with future breast cancer screening. So if you think that having that mammogram on that contralateral breast, the opposite side, every year is going to be incredibly stressful for you and you don't want to deal with that. That's one reason why someone will choose to have a bilateral mastectomy. Um, Some women don't want to have radiation. um, And that may be another reason to choose to at least have a one-sided mastectomy. Some people choose to have the other side just for symmetry's sake. Here in Omaha, we do have um, a substantial number of patients who come from rural areas. So it's quite a drive. And radiation is daily uh, for anywhere from three to six weeks. So sometimes that will help them make that decision. As far as removing the, that opposite side uh, breast, the the chance of us finding something that we didn't expect in that breast is one percent or less. So it happens, and I think that those those anecdotes or those experiences are um, well known um, because uh, that patient had that breast removed, and maybe it wasn't you know absolutely medically indicated, but look, we found something. But the chance of that is extremely low the chance of developing a breast cancer in that opposite side, assuming you don't have a genetic mutation, um, is somewhere around 4% at 10 years. So pretty low as well. There is some data that survival actually may be slightly improved, and this is preliminary data, for women who have a lumpectomy with radiation compared to that bilateral mastectomy or a unilateral mastectomy. And some of that reasoning or the, the cause of that may be that they may get to their systemic therapy sooner because they don't have such a long recovery period after their mastectomy. Um, so from a medical standpoint, we do not improve overall survival of women with breast cancer um, who are candidates for a lumpectomy by removing both breasts or even one breast. We don't improve survival. There's a slight risk of an in-breast recurrence for women who have a lumpectomy with radiation. And if that occurs, then we proceed with the mastectomy on
2: that
0: side. Our gratitude to Nebraska Cancer Specialists for their support.
2: Nebraska Cancer Specialists is the largest community oncology practice in the region and their regional leader in cancer diagnosis, treatment and research. Their physicians are some of the most experienced and highly qualified in the area. Nebraska Cancer Specialists provide considerate, state-of-the-art care for their patients at their 5 metro Omaha locations. You didn't choose your diagnosis, but you can choose your care. Experience you can trust, compassion you can feel. Nebraska Cancer Specialists, nebraskacancer.com.
0: What do you wish that you could talk to patients about or what are they bringing to you that you go, oh gosh, we need to really dispel this because this is not true and too many people are thinking about this as truth.
1: Sure. Um, there, there's two 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 topics that really come to mind there. And one um, is with relation to bioidentical hormones, um, we know that you know a bioidentical hormone just means that that hormone has the same structure as your natural hormones, and there are pharmaceutical preparations of hormones that have that same structure as well. Um, quite often, people when they are talking about bioidentical hormones, they're really talking about a compounded product that is recommended by their provider. Um, And that product supposedly contains a mixture of hormones. So it may contain some estrogen compounds. It may contain progesterone, maybe some testosterone, maybe precursors of those hormones. And they mix it up. And there has never been any data to say that that is safer than conventional hormones. Now, we can talk about the safety Mm -hmm. of conventional hormones as well. But bioidentical hormones have never been demonstrated to be superior in terms of safety or efficacy compared to conventional hormones. And furthermore, there have been studies to look to see, do those compounded products have what they say they're going to have? And in what I would consider to be the best study, those products contained anywhere from two-thirds of what they said up to nearly three times of what they said they contained. Oh, And so (laughs) that really, in my mind, calls into question that practice. Um, And so... It's not, it, it may be the right decision for some women, um, but it's, some women do come in thinking that their bioidentical hormones are definitively safer than conventional hormone therapy, and that's not true, unfortunately.
0: Are you going to need hormone therapy if you are a breast cancer patient?
1: Uh, that, so number one, any patient with a breast cancer diagnosis should not take any type of hormone going forward. Um, I say that with a little asterisk because there is some data that um, at least early studies suggest testosterone may be safe for those women, but we don't have long-term safety data on that. So if we're just going to get one message out there, it's that hormones really should be um, avoided, if at all possible, for women with any history of breast cancer. As far as how we manipulate hormones in the treatment of breast cancer, for the majority of women who are estrogen and or progesterone receptor positive, those women will benefit by taking an anti-hormone therapy. And so a lot of times we talk about quote unquote hormone therapy for breast cancer, but in reality it's an anti-hormone therapy. And the women who have the hardest time with that are the women who have more recently been through menopause or who recently were taking exogenous hormones or prescribed hormones. And the reason for that is the side effects of those anti-hormone medicines come from your body adjusting to the change in your hormone levels. And so those women get menopause symptoms, hot flashes, uh, aching in the joints, mood swings, all of those symptoms that can kind of come along with menopause. And the reason for that is once we're in menopause, our ovaries aren't making estrogen anymore, but our body still has another way of making estrogen. And those medicines essentially shut off that other route for making estrogen, lower your
0: estrogen levels. And by doing that, drop your risk of breast cancer recurrence. There's a lot to think about in breast cancer. What Mm -hmm. makes you excited in terms of development? What's coming down the pike that you go, that could be a game changer. And I think about like the vaccines, you know, we were talking Mm -hmm. not too long ago about HPV Mm -hmm. and the HPV vaccine and how it is basically a cancer vaccine. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, And are we going to see something like that for breast cancer?
1: Well, we certainly hope so. We're not there from a breast cancer standpoint yet. When I think about um, recent developments that have really changed how we practice, there's several that come to mind that are really exciting, in my opinion. One is that we are much more personalized in our systemic therapy and our medicines that we can prescribe for a woman. And we use chemotherapy following breast cancer surgery significantly less often than we used to. And that's because for those women who are hormone receptor positive but HER2 negative who have either no lymph node involvement or minimal lymph node involvement, there are now tests that we can run on their tumor specimen, so the woman doesn't have to go through any additional procedures, it's just on their specimen, that can more accurately define for that woman what is your risk of recurrence over the next 5 to 10 years? And for some of those tests, we even get information about whether or not chemotherapy is likely to benefit you or not. It used to be that any tumor over a centimeter, any lymph node involvement, we gave chemotherapy because we didn't know for which patients we could safely omit that part of their treatment. And now we know that there are a lot of patients for which we can omit that part of their treatment. Unfortunately, not everybody, but um, it's a much uh, better conversation when we can say, look, we are on solid ground here to avoid chemotherapy. It really wouldn't benefit you. So that's been really exciting over the last 10 years, to more personalize those treatments so that we're not overtreating people. Something else that's pretty exciting in the treatment of breast cancer, more on the surgical side of things, is that we used to be doing a lot more what we call axillary lymph node dissections. And that's where the surgeon would go in and remove all of those lymph nodes in the woman's axilla or armpit. Um, And now, especially for women who have a lumpectomy, we often can avoid that full axillary dissection. And so we're seeing a lot less lymphedema in the arm. That's where um, a woman will have chronic swelling in that arm, and it has to do with the drainage from the lymphatics from that arm. So we've been able to spare a lot of women that lymphedema um, if they have a lumpectomy and they don't need all of their lymph nodes removed. You know, looking more at the the side of metastatic breast cancer, there are a few exciting developments there. Um, Unfortunately, we still are not at a place that we can... Um, have a high likelihood of curing a woman with metastatic breast cancer. In fact, we, we generally tell people this is really not a curable situation, although there are anecdotes out there of very long-term survivors from that. Um, but we now have a whole class of drugs called CDK inhibitors, and those are oral medications that we can give along with an anti-hormone therapy and the average length of time that a woman can be on those oral medicines, so an anti-hormone therapy and one of these CDK inhibitors with metastatic breast cancer can be two and a half years or longer with no progression of their disease. And so that's certainly in advance. We used to have to blast with chemotherapy um, pretty regularly in those situations. And now we've been able to step back to much more tolerable treatments. And it's really more of a chronic disease for women um, as opposed to something that they're diagnosed with and you know it takes their life in a matter of months luckily we've moved away from that with a lot of our new treatments Um, another kind of the last advance that's really exciting is immunotherapy and so we're using um, immunotherapy in the treatment of breast cancer for the right patient. Again, we look at the molecular signature for those patients to see is immunotherapy likely to benefit them or not. Um, you know, The average person receiving immunotherapy walks out after their treatment feeling just fine. Now, those treatments certainly can have risks um, of their immune system becoming too revved up, um, but um, uh, day-to-day living, those patients are feeling pretty well, and now we're looking to move that immunotherapy earlier in in their disease treatment. Um, For people who have more advanced cancers but not metastatic, we're looking um, at certain populations of moving that immunotherapy earlier to see can we increase the chance of curing patients by using that immunotherapy sooner
0: we still hear a lot of discussion about, do you start mammography at 50? Do mm-hmm. you start mammography at 40? And mm-hmm. I know that even doctors disagree on where you should go and when you should start this. Do you have a thought on this? Well,
1: you're absolutely right. Um, I'm I'm biased
0: because I see a lot of women
1: who are diagnosed um, in their 40s with breast cancer based on you know their mammography. And so it's really difficult to wholeheartedly embrace starting that later um, because we know if you're diagnosed earlier, you have a higher chance of cure, and also you may not need more aggressive types of treatment. So um, the American College of Radiology recommends starting mammograms at age 40 um, and having them yearly um, and stopping once we think that life expectancy is 10 years or less. Um, or until someone's health starts to decline. Now, that's in contrast um, to the American Cancer Society, and they recommend starting at 45 and considering mammograms every every one to two years until you get to 55, and then looking at mammogram yearly. So you're absolutely right. There is some controversy. Um, I certainly see women who are diagnosed in their 40s based on mammogram, and so um, for me and my family, we start at 40. <laughs>
0: So. Well, that's important consideration, especially mm-hmm. because it's your life and it's your body, and you're trying to really be careful about what you preserve, you know, preserving Absolutely. what
1: you can. I think the push to um to decrease the frequency of those mammograms, there's several motivators to try to decrease that frequency. Um, it, it's estimated that there will be about sixteen breast cancers per thousand women. If they get a mammogram yearly, starting at 40 for their entire life, um, so that's that's fairly low. Um, the risks, other risks associated with mammograms, can be that um, you know the false positive rate. It can. It's estimated that. Over a course of 10 years, nearly half of women will have some false positive on their mammogram. So that's something else to remember, that if the radiology department calls you back, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have breast cancer. It means that we just need to take a closer look. Um, Now for women who are at higher risk, we sometimes will use MRI screening as well. The MRI does not replace the mammogram, but it, um, it adds to that information. It has a higher sensitivity than mammogram. You know, it's estimated that about 20% of breast cancers will be missed on conventional mammogram. That, that number is a little bit lower for some of the newer 3D tomosynthesis mammograms. Um, but MRI can be useful if you are at higher risk, and that means that we know that you have either a strong family history, a defined gene, or there are some findings on biopsies that are not cancer but tell us that you may have an increased risk of cancer. So those women should consider getting MRI in addition to their mammogram. Um, Also, there are some women who have very dense breasts. You know, a mammogram, you're basically looking at black and white and gray. And if you have very dense breasts, um, a lot of findings can be obscured because your mammogram is just very white in many places, and you can't really see past that too well. So that's another place where MRI can be helpful insurance coverage for MRI for dense breasts can be very difficult. Um, We have a little easier time, we get some pushback for MRI um, for family history or or, um, those types of things, but we certainly um, encourage women to pursue that in certain circumstances. I wanted to mention one other type of screening that is not well validated and that's thermography. You know, you mentioned what other myths can we dispel. I have had some women come in feeling that or they they tell me that they were told that they were undergoing breast cancer screening by getting a yearly thermography scan. Um, And this is technology based on a finding in the 1970s that demonstrated a higher skin temperature overlying an area of breast cancer. But subsequent studies have shown that thermography can miss more than 60% of breast cancers. Mm-hmm. And so in some circles, it's promoted as a non-radiation method for looking for breast cancer, but it really is no better than waving your hand over your breast, quite honestly. So, um, so thermography is not a reliable breast cancer screening method.
0: Kirsten, we are so lucky to have you in our community because you're such a good source of information. You're, I can tell your patients probably love you, even though that they hate coming to see you because you are probably not the bearer of good news most often.
1: I hear a lot. We, we wish we had never met you, and I totally <laughs> understand that. <laughs> but, you know, it's really an honor to help people in in getting them the information that they need and helping them make the right decision for them um, and, and making their path through their treatment whatever that treatment is as livable as possible for them so it's really an honor to do
0: that. Kirsten Liu everyone thank you so much for joining us and hopefully you've learned a lot today because I have.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: If you need help finding a physician go to omahamedical.com and use our find a physician search and also our gratitude to Children's Hospital and Medical Center as well as Nebraska Cancer Specialists for their support a Parkville media production.
2: The information shared in this podcast is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the presenters and do not represent the thoughts, advice, or opinions of the Metro Omaha Medical Society. The information contained in this podcast should not serve as the basis for any medical treatment and is not intended to be a substitute for actual medical advice. Before making changes to your health care plan or a loved one's, always consult with a healthcare professional.